From Alaska Teen Media Institute, this is Podcast in Place, Youth Stories from Quarantine, a series about youth in Alaska during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Atme producer Yuli Zhang, recording this in the Atme studio. It's been over a year since we started working from home. Usually, we're recording these intros on our phones or tablets, huddled under a blanket in a closet. But now that many of us are fully vaccinated, we've started reopening the studio in a limited capacity. Coleman Cutchins is a clinical pharmacist with the Alaska Department of Health. He had only been working for the state for about two months when the pandemic hit. Due to his background in the medical field, Cutchins was brought on board as part of the state's public health leadership team on COVID-19. Youth health reporter Jania Toomey spoke with Cutchins about his role as a public health official, when the vaccine might be available for children younger than 12, and his work combating the country's opioid epidemic. They spoke on May 26, 2021. Could you please describe your job responsibilities before the COVID-19 pandemic hit and what they're like now? So it's kind of interesting. So I only uh, came on with the state about two months before COVID hit. Prior to that, I was actually working um, with federal public health for about a year. Um, Prior to that, I was at Providence Alaska Medical Center for a long time. So uh, prior to COVID, I was brought on. Um, with state health, you actually work on um, opioid epidemic. So um, we had started doing a um, syringe testing program and, and setting up a few other initiatives, um, working on opioid epidemic. And then uh, about less than two months into it, you know, the Wuhan flight landed and uh, we declared a disaster emergency and, and then COVID broke loose. So um, throughout the pandemic, I've kind of worked on a lot of things, you know, everything from early on setting up alternative care sites and teaching distilleries and breweries how to make FDA hand sanitizer, um, working on patient transfers, uh, therapeutics once we got our first, the first drug remdesivir um, available, figuring out how to distribute that, uh, figuring out what patients we would give it to, things like that. Then on to providing a lot of information, you know, through the whole pandemic, there's been so much misinformation that I appreciate, you know, what you're doing and and what a lot of people like yourself are doing to talk to the experts and try to get, you know, reliable information out there. Um, Just talking about what drugs, you know, have data to support their use and which ones don't. Um, And then moving into testing, I've led, been the COVID testing lead through the entire pandemic. So figuring out how to test for industry and people moving in and out of the state. And, um, and then obviously then this fall, it moved into a lot of, a lot of uh, work around vaccine. So that's, I'm sure there's some things in there I forgot, but it was kind of the 10,000 foot overview. Yeah, that must've been very um, unexpected and a wild transition to be placed in a job and then have the pandemic completely flip your responsibilities upside down. Um, There's a lot that I want to talk about that you mentioned in terms of what you've been doing uh, to get the pandemic under control. But firstly, I actually wanted to ask you about the opioid crisis and the the intersection of that and the COVID-19 pandemic. 
Um, has COVID-19 impacted opioid misuse at all? Um, is there any sort of connection between those two things? I think a few things we know. So I think it's too early to know the entire impact. So, you know, what we did see actually mid pandemic was um, a reduction in ER visits, a reduction in uh, unintentional overdose, um, you know, and, and, and a reduction in some ways in, in opioid prescribing. So that's, you know, prescribing is medical use and then illicit use is, you know, the stuff people buy on the street. Um, you know, a lot of that was the fact that everyone was on lockdown. You know, a lot of that could be the fact that um, for the illicit drugs that come out of countries, not the U.S., maybe it was hard to get them in here. But you know, during the pandemic, we actually saw a decrease. Um, now, on the flip side of it, though, here in the last two months here in Alaska and, and also around the U.S., we've seen a major increase in heroin overdoses, um, more so than we've really seen in the last two or three years. Trying to get some figure out some reasons why, you know, I mean, obviously it's, it's kind of too, too soon to tell. Um, another kind of concern, another concerning um, that I've had is the VA system, you know, the Veterans Administration system did a large study looking at um, people with long COVID, you know, so, um, you know, about a third of patients who, who have COVID con continue to need medical care. Um, afterwards, you know, we're calling it long COVID. The official medical term now is post-acute. Um, and through that data, we've seen a major increase in opioid prescribing, uh, which is concerning because that was part of the reason why we got into the opioid, you know, epidemic years ago. Um, we, you know, in the medical world, we've really done a lot to, 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 for opioid stewardship, you know, correct prescribing of opioid short terms. So to see an uptick in opioid prescribing is, 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 is pretty concerning, especially when we talk about, you know, we have the potential for millions of people to be dealing with long COVID. How is Alaska in terms of opioid misuse rates um, compared to other places in the United States? You know, it, it, Alaska in general, it's, a lot of things are really hard to gauge in relation to the rest of the U.S. because we have small numbers of people. So um, we can see big fluctuations. So, you know, and, and it can be just due to a few people. So what, what, you know, from a statistical standpoint, we talk about the denominator being small. Um, you know, we're not, we're not the best and we're not the worst. I, I honestly, I haven't pulled up stats recently um, and I'd be happy to do that and get back to you, but, uh, you know, there's definitely work that can be done. And uh, I think there's work that can be done in all states, though. Definitely. Um, yeah, I wanted to circle back to something you said a little earlier. Um, I thought it was really interesting how you mentioned partnering with distilleries to make hand sanitizer. Could you tell me a little bit about how that came into fruition? Did, where'd you get that idea from? Well, so the, uh, the FDA actually partnered with um, the CDC. So early on, like over a year ago now and about a year ago, uh, there was a major hand sanitizer shortage. You know, a lot of our hand sanitizer that we get here in the U.S. is manufactured in other countries. Um, and with COVID, a lot of those shipping lanes got shut down. You know, we also didn't know as much about the virus. You know, at that point, we didn't know what we call it fromite transmission. You know, that's like surface mouth, like surfaces. We didn't know how transmissible it would be on surfaces. 
Um, you know, we didn't know how effective masks were going to be. There were a lot of unknowns. So in a lot of those unknowns, and, and also with Alaska, where we have a lot of communities with limited access to clean water, um, you know, there was a big national scramble to get hand sanitizer. So everywhere was buying up as much hand sanitizer as they could. And then actually the FDA and the CDC put out guidance. Um, so hand sanitizer is actually considered a drug by the FDA. Um, it's considered an over-the-counter drug but it is considered a drug. So um, to make any drug, you have to be licensed with the FDA and approved by the FDA, and you have to be registered with the FDA. So that's a pretty long process to like scale up places. So um, they did an emergency use and said, hey, you know, other places can make hand sanitizer if they use this exact recipe and if they register with the FDA or something called MedWatch. So what that means is you have any reason to like recall a batch, uh, you have to be able to do that. If you have any you know, adverse events from, from whatever it is, you know, hand sanitizer in this case, you have to be able to track it. So it was sort of a quick, you know, teach distilleries what they have to do to get on board with the FDA and how they have to track things and the fact that they have to use this one exact recipe, they can't deviate from it, you know, they couldn't add sent to it or you know they couldn't make it any different this was this was it the one recipe you had to use um and, and you know we it worked you know we we got uh hand sanitizer out you know there for a while i mean it was months where you couldn't buy hand sanitizer in stores and and it was uh fortunately we never got into into the point where not having hand sanitizer was a huge crisis and and, and made disease spread but at the point when we were doing it, um, you know, we just didn't know. We didn't know as much about the virus as we do now. Yeah, I never would have guessed that hand sanitizer could be considered a drug. And I also never thought that you'd have to use the same precision making it as you would with, you know, other other substances like vaccines, for instance. That's wild. Um, yeah, I mean, it has therapeutic claims. And if you think about it, you know, if you have a hand sanitizer that doesn't kill bacteria and viruses and people are using it it's not safe so it, it's you know it, it's uh yep it's considered a drug <laughs> i also wanted to ask you about some of these vaccine incentives that we're seeing pop up in alaska and elsewhere both private and publicly sponsored um what do you think about vaccine incentives are they working are they a good idea you know um some of them are working. I was on a call the other day talking about, um, you know, Ohio and their million dollar vaccine lottery um, and the, how they have seen a lot of interest in it. Um, on one side of it, I think it's unfortunate we have to incentivize people because really when it comes down to it, you know, vaccines are the safest drug that we give to large numbers of people every year with way more harm, way more hospitalizations, way more ER visits from like over-the-counter pain meds. Um, you know, and vitamins. So it, it's, it's unfortunate, but I, I honestly, I'm at the point now where every one more person we get vaccinated is one more better. And, and, and it's really a, um, all hands on deck at this point to get as many people as possible vaccinated. Yeah. Have you received the vaccine? I did. So I got it the um, first day I was, I was able to, um, you know, uh, my wife got it really early because she's a medical provider that sees patients and she actually sees, does a lot of COVID response. Um, I waited a little while because, um, you know, at first it was such, so scarce um, and I'm not currently seeing patients, you know, um, as I'm with the state. 
So I, I waited a little while just out of a steward from stewardship standpoint. Um, my 13 year old daughter and my 15 year old son got it the first day that they possibly could, the day that ASIP approved it. Um, you know, if you look at national stats, well over nine, it, there's, a, there's kind of a range estimate, but somewhere between 90 and 95% of doctors have received it the absolute first day they've been able to, and it's been offered to them. Um, many organizations, big healthcare groups, big hospital systems are, are reporting, you know, 999 to 100% of their doctors are fully vaccinated. Um, I can speak, you know, just because I know here in Alaska, you know, um, all of our hospitalists and all of our intensivists and all of our ER docs and all of our infectious disease physicians at all of our major hospitals are all fully vaccinated and have been for a long time. So we're really seeing a big disparity in this. You know, the experts are all fully vaccinated. It's the other people that are having hesitations around it. And even speaking about childhood, the, ch the children vaccinated, um, being vaccinated, I have a couple friends uh, from residency that drove uh, six hours to get their twin to enroll there. They had two kids, um, a 13 year old and a 15 year old that both met the criteria for 12 and up and they actually drove six hours each way so they could be enrolled in the drug trial, you know, understanding that if kids weren't in the trial, we wouldn't meet enrollment and it'd take longer. And a lot of medical providers enrolled their kids in the drug trials. Could you tell me where we're at in the approval process for children under 12? When do you expect to see them getting vaccinated? So it's a little bit of a window now. Um, the way drug trials work is you calculate ahead of time how many people you need to enroll to see um, an effect, you know, to make sure that the results you see aren't due to chance. So they've calculated that number. Um, both Pfizer and Moderna are studying in kids six months and older. Um, they haven't, last I checked, I think Friday, they haven't quite met enrollment yet. We don't know what stage they're at in enrollment. You know, it's not like a ticker, so we can know, oh, hey, they only need 10 more. You know, it's either a, hey, we met enrollment or we didn't. So they haven't met enrollment yet. I suspect they're very close. Um, Pfizer have said they anticipate being able to uh, submit to the FDA in September. Um, really, the way we'll get a better idea once both of those trials, and it's public information, you can go to clinicaltrials.gov and see the status of any of these trials, any drug trial for that matter. Um, once they meet enrollment, we'll be at about a three to four month window. Um, because they have to follow the patients for at least two months. So, um, and then it takes them a little while too to compile all the data and analyze everything and then make an appointment with the FDA. Um, so now I'm thinking probably October-ish, you know, but it could be sooner, it could be later, but we won't really have a better idea until the trials are enrolled. Um, I expect Pfizer is gonna go for three through 11 first and then six months, um, you know, and then kind of the under threes after that. Um, that's kind of my best guess. You know, once they meet enrollment, we'll get a much better idea of when that final approval will happen. We'll be right back. As life is slowly starting to feel normal again, Alaska Teen Media Institute is looking for youth to join our team. As a youth producer, you can conduct interviews like the one you're listening to right now, edit audio, record voiceovers, help write scripts, and much more. And all of that is paid work. 
So if you are between the ages of 13 and 24, living in Alaska, and interested in joining at me, go to alaskateenmedia.org slash join. You can also email us at news at alaskateenmedia.org. Now back to Jania's interview with Coleman Cutchins. You mentioned that some people are skeptical of the vaccine and don't want to get it. Without giving any names, do you have any friends or family that fall into this category? And if so, how has it affected your relationship with them? Personally, I've been doing a lot of reaching out to friends and family. Um, you know, there are people who know me and uh, I've, I've asked them and I've talked to them and I've told them, you know, um, let's talk about this because it's a major public health issue for all of us. Um, none of them are in Alaska, but I do have um, two relatives. One of them um, has been very anti-vaccine for about the last 10 years. I think he wasn't growing up actually, um, but he has been more as an adult. You know, he's, a, uh, he's, he's an adult now. Uh, he wouldn't even talk to me, you know, and uh, we have a really good relationship. He's a, he's a family member that actually lived with me for a year when he was in college, but uh, this is one of those things where he was like, I'm not even gonna talk to you about it. Um, you know, unfortunate, I wish he would have been open to at least have a discussion. You know, I have another family member um, who was willing to talk to me, but uh, said, I'm not gonna do it. I don't care what you say. Um, I think, you know, and, and I empathize with, with both of them. You know, I, I think it's, uh, they're both good people. You know, there's, they both wanna do the right thing. You know, they just, um, they've really been swayed by a lot of the misinformation that's out there. Um, you know, and more than anything now, you know, I'm having a lot of conversations with people. You know, I just want people making their decisions based on the correct information. You know, I don't want people making major decisions like not getting a vaccine that could protect them, that could protect their family, that could protect their community based on things that aren't true. You know, if, if you have the correct information and you know the truth and you still say, hey, you know what, this isn't for me, you know, I feel a lot better than that. You know, overall, too, um, in my medical career, the things that kind of are the most heartbreaking are the things that are preventable. You know, I think about early in my career, I worked in critical care in the intensive care unit. And, you know, it was, a, you know, the person who uh, had a collision in their car and didn't have their seatbelt on, you know, or the person, the kid who fell off his bike and wasn't wearing a helmet and had a major head injury. And, and at this point, you know, these are extremely safe and extremely effective vaccines. So COVID is really a preventable illness, um, you know, so for people to end up at this point, um, you know, a lot, uh, we have some breakthrough disease, I will acknowledge that, but for large numbers of people to end up in the hospital now, you know, 98% of our people hospitalized in Alaska since January 1st have all been unvaccinated. You know, so you look at it now, we're at about half of the state have been vaccinated. So half of our state that's unvaccinated has made up 98% of our hospitalizations, which means the other half only made up 2%. So, you know, and nationally, we're showing even lower numbers than that of hospitalization, you know, and fully vaccinated people. Yeah, it's hard in this internet age because there's just a barrage of conflicting opinions coming at you at all times. Um, but what would you say to somebody who's hesitant to get the vaccine? You know, uh, short version is, you know, nothing's risk-free. Driving in a car is not risk-free. Walking out my door is not risk-free. You know, going to bed at night isn't risk-free. There's risk with everything. 
Um, for these vaccines, for any vaccine, not just these vaccines, like I said, they are the safest drugs we give to the large numbers of people every year. And really, when you talk about the way vaccines work in our body, so we, we talk about the mechanism of action, you know, the way they work, they're one of the most natural drugs we give. I mean, they teach our body to do what it is supposed to do. You know, they don't block chemical receptors. They don't change pathways. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're extremely natural. You know, the other thing about it is they're only in our body for days or only a few days. There's a study called pharmacokinetics. Basically, that's how drugs enter our body and move through our body and move out of our body. So um, we, most part, you don't, you don't worry about kinetics with vaccines because you can't get a high enough level to like overdose on a vaccine. Um, you know, you don't accumulate them because you only take it once. And then again, you know, if it's multiple dose, you take it again a few weeks later. So with these COVID vaccines, you know, what we call the half-life is how we determine how a drug's eliminated. It's eight to 10 hours in these vaccines. So what that means is in two days, in about 50 hours, the drugs are clinically gone from your body. And then in about 70 hours, let's say three days, the drugs are completely gone from your body completely undetectable and gone. So there are drugs that are in your body for a very short amount of time and they don't reach high levels. You know, drugs that we take every day for say the rest of our life, um, those are the type of drugs that we see possible long-term side effects for because they're in our body for years and years and years. For vaccines, they're really only there for a short period of time. They teach your body a natural process and they're gone. That's an interesting way to think about it. I haven't I haven't thought about it from that perspective before, um, just because with vaccines, it seems like there's a sense of permanence. Once you get it, it seems like it's part of you, if that makes sense. Like you're immune um, or it, it lasts for a long time, but it's interesting to think about it passing through your body quickly um, and just looking at, a, looking at it as a, a learning process for your body. Well, long-term uh, effect is from your body. Mm-hmm. You know, your immune system has that memory now and it knows what to see, right. it doesn't alt. you know, it doesn't stay with you. It's your immune system then doing the work. Right. From an epidemiological perspective, what do you think is interesting about coronavirus and why has it been able to uh, create this pandemic and this crisis across the world? So in a few ways, and, and I've spent you know, most of the last 10 years of my career as an infectious disease expert, um, in a lot of ways, it's sort of the perfect virus for this. Um, And there's a few characteristics that really make it, you know, perfect in a bad way, right? (laughs) So the first characteristic that makes it a really good pandemic is asymptomatic spread. You know, about half of the people when they're infecting other people have no symptoms at all. So we know that, you know, roughly half of the cases where somebody infects somebody else, they don't know they have COVID and they don't feel any different. You know, we get higher than half if we talk about the people who have mild symptoms and think, oh, this is just a cold or, hey, I might have my seasonal allergies. So that alone right there, because let's face it, if if you feel terrible or if you know you're sick, you're probably not going to be out there around other people. So that asymptomatic spread, pre-symptomatic spread, where people are spreading the virus all over the place and don't know about it, that's one of the elements that really makes it, um, a, you know, a good pandemic virus. You know, um, the other thing is, 
you know, it's highly transmissible. It's a respiratory virus. You don't have to be close to somebody. Um, you know, you think about like Ebola. Ebola is terrible. It has really high mortality, but you really have to be up close and personable with somebody to get Ebola. You know, it's, you can't walk past someone in the grocery store as much, you know, and or you can't walk through the grocery store with Ebola and infect, you know, a whole bunch of people. So it, it's, it's, an, it's a respiratory virus. It's easily spread. It can infect a lot of people. You know, the last thing that makes it another, you know, good pandemic is um, it's serious and it causes a lot of, you know, hospitalizations and death, but not a whole lot. So, you know, um, things that kill the host quickly don't spread a whole lot, you know, and viruses, I think it's important to remember viruses are te not technically living things, you know, they don't have cells, they don't have their own metabolism, and they can't reproduce on their own. So they need a host. So viruses that, you know, kill their host quickly don't have a chance to spread to new hosts. So with this virus, you know, I, th I think those are kind of the things that really make it um, a, you know, a good virus, you know, a good virus in terms of a virus propagating and creating a pandemic, but, you know, really, uh, in a lot of ways, a, a perfect pathogen. At this point in the vaccine rollout, what are the biggest barriers to ending the pandemic? I mean, I really, honestly, and, and I don't know, the biggest barrier at this point is people willing to get vaccine. We have plenty of vaccine. Um, you know, we have enough uh, last I heard, we have probably enough vaccine in Alaska to immunize every single person who's eligible in Alaska. So if everyone decided, you know, everyone 12 and up decided today's the day I'm going to get my vaccine, like we would have extremely high vaccine rates tomorrow. Well, actually, no, in, uh, you know, five to six weeks, <laughs> because it takes two weeks after your last dose to get fully vaccinated. So at this point, it's really um, having people make the decision to go out and get vaccinated. And you know that's why uh, myself and the other members of our medical leadership team are doing a lot of talking to people like you, um, you know. And and it is a big barrier. You know, I, I've been saying for a while, if we would have opened up the textbook, you know, uh, two years ago that said, um, how do we fight a pandemic, it would have told us um, figure out how the virus is spread and stop that. So that was with COVID, that was distancing, that was masking, that was avoiding other people, that was, you know, quarantining and isolating infected and close contacts. But then it, on day one, start developing a vaccine. And as soon as you get a safe and effective vaccine, get as many people as possible vaccinated. That was the playbook before this pandemic started. So now we're in the point of, you know, get as many people as possible, you know, 100% would be amazing, you know, or, or even, you know, anywhere approaching that. And end the pandemic. You know that's the stage of the game we're at now, and there there wasn't really an exit strategy out of the pandemic without vaccine. To dig in a little more to your retrospection, um, you have had a hugely important role in the pandemic response in Alaska. What could we do better if there was another pandemic, and what should we keep the same? What went well? You know, here in Alaska, um, I think what went well is. Um, our geographic isolation helped us, and also our low population density helped us. Um, you know, I think we did a really good job at that early on. You know, uh, what could we have done better? You know, it's hard to say. Um, my own personal thoughts, and this is nothing political, this is just um, my own thought on it, is I wish as a medical community, 
we would have done more proactively to educate people that were hesitant for vaccination years ago um, instead of now. You know, I think, you know, if 10, 15, 20 years ago, we could have made more of a focus on educating people on vaccines. Um, also, you know, educating people on the FDA process and educating people on a lot of these things that people never knew they were going to know about. Um, you know, I guess that's my own, only real big lessons learned. Yeah, at this point, we're seeing um, masks be removed indoors. We're seeing things start to open up. As this pandemic um, appears to settle down and continues its course, what are you looking forward to? You know, I'm honestly, I'm, I'm not looking forward as much for me as for you and other young people. You know, my biggest concern with the pandemic, if we don't get, you know, high vaccine rates, and we're only at about 50% for Alaska. So, I mean, 50% still means there's a lot of unvaccinated people out there. Um, you know, I, I have a 13-year-old and a 15-year-old. You know, I want to see my middle school and high schooler get back to life as normal. I want to see them hang out with their friends, and I want to see them go to camps. And I want to, you know, I mean, I think, you know, the people in that younger age demographic, in a lot of ways are, are, are have getting the worst end of the pandemic because this is a time in your life when you are highly social and you are out and about doing things. You know, for me, I'm, I'm more on the backside of that. So for, for me, I don't know that it'll, um, I don't have, you know, I'm more looking forward to watching other people enjoy, you know, what they haven't been able to do um, for the last over a year. Yeah, I love that. And I, def I definitely empathize with your kids. I'm a college student. Um, so the social aspect of school is super important to me. Um, it's been rough, but oh, that, I mean, yeah, yeah, high. I mean, college. You know, pretty much middle school through mid twenties are are really, I think, affected the most of this, just because it's just a time in your life when you're highly involved and highly mm -hmm. social, and you know. Yeah, relationships are just the most important thing to me right now. So. COVID makes it hard. Um, but that wraps up all my questions. Um, do you have any additional comments or thoughts? Feel free. Um, but thank you so much for letting me take the time to interview you. Yeah, you're welcome. I mean, if anything else comes up, let me know. It's just, you know, I just really encourage people um, talk to the experts. You know, um, even with the FDA drug approval process, it's highly complex. You know, nobody can explain the process in a few lines on social media or even in a one-page article. And also, you know, medical literature isn't the easiest thing to read. Um, you know, I've, I've spent a tremendous amount of my time, my life, reading medical literature, and it's not easy still. I mean, I still have to reread things and go through them. And I mean, spending hours a day through most of the last decade speeding been, you know, reading medical literature to keep up with my board certifications and such, you know, and, and just, you know, really, I, I encourage people to question the information. If it doesn't sound right, it's probably not. That was youth health reporter Jania Toomey speaking with Coleman Cutchins. You've been listening to Podcast in Place, Youth Stories from Quarantine from Alaska Teen Media Institute. Our show's theme music was composed by Devin Schreckengost and Kendrick Whiteman. You can find these stories at alaskateenmedia.org, where we have included resources for youth during quarantine in partnership with the State of Alaska Division of Behavioral Health.
Alaska Teen Media Institute is based in Anchorage, Alaska. We would like to acknowledge the Denina people whose land we work on. Many thanks to supporters of our podcast, including Rosie Robards, Nat Herz, and the Alaska Press Club. The views expressed in this program do not necessarily represent the views of the Alaska Press Club or our other sponsors. Thanks to our listeners who contribute to our programs and help us leverage additional funds and grants. If you'd like to support Youth Voices in Alaska and help keep our podcast going, you can support us through Patreon. Patreon is a membership platform that makes it easy for you to support creative endeavors like Atme. Just go to patreon.com slash alaskateenmedia. You can also help out by subscribing to, rating, or writing a review of our series on Apple Podcasts. Every little bit helps us get our stories out there. And don't forget to check out our website, alaskateenmedia.org. There you can learn more about what our organization does, discover more youth-produced content, or find out how to get involved. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for all sorts of updates. For Alaska Teen Media Institute, I'm Yuli Zhang. Thanks for listening. Stay safe out there, and we'll get through this together.